All right, so let's uh, go to the text, shall we? First Peter chapter one, verse. First uh, uh, Peter chapter four, sorry, verse eight. First Peter chapter four, verse eight. The uh, verses that we're go going to read are going to appear in the chat, so I'll let you follow that way. First Peter four eight. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us grace to uh, understand your will, understand this word that we just read and stamp it in our hearts. We want you, the word of Christ to dwell richly in our hearts. In that manner, we can bring glory to your name and indeed love each other as you want us to love each other. And this we ask for Christ's sake, Amen. So as you can see, we're skipping verse 7. We dealt with verse 6 last week, but we're jumping to verse 8 because verse 7 deals with the topic of prayer. And uh, since March 20th is the day that we've dedicated to prayer for the church and for our nation, we're going to deal with the verse, uh, verse 7 on March 20th. Now, throughout this epistle, we've seen Peter addressing a suffering church. Uh, but why were they suffering? Was it common suffering? I'm sure some of them uh, suffered harshly because of the circumstances in which they lived. Living in the Roman Empire in that day was not an easy thing. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have running water. They didn't have cars. They had a whole bunch of issues that we could look at. And, of course, the Roman Empire itself was a very harsh Empire, Though they, there was the Pax Romana, but they still suffered. That was common suffering. Everybody suffered that way. But there was an additional suffering that the Christians embraced. And the Christians made up of both Jews and Christians who believed in Christ were suffering for their faith. And this was, of course, because Jesus had told them that this was going to happen. The elect were going to suffer. They were chosen of God to be a particular people, to be a holy race, a chosen people, um, living stones, but they were going to suffer. In fact, Jesus says in John 15, 18 and 19, and these were the words that encouraged the believers as they suffered. If the world hates you, you know that it, is, it has hated me before it hated you. And it's interesting that Jesus says the world, because Jesus never left Judea and Galilee. He never did. What world? And all, <laughs> who's the world? Anyone outside of the family of God, of the elect, are the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, we have to keep that in mind. That's the lot of the Christian life. We'd rather be with Christ suffering than be without any pain in this world and then suffer in the afterlife. According to Jesus, the world was going to make it difficult for the church to exist. So we are the invaders, if you want. We don't belong here. Listen to the Lord's Prayer in John 17, just before he died. On the cross, John 17 verses 14 to 16 is praying 
for his own. He's praying for the church. And he says this, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. Again, notice the world. They've never been out of Jerusalem. They've never been because he's foreseen not only the disciples now, he has foreseen every Christian, every one of the elect. world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You, child of God, are of a heavenly citizenship. You belong to Christ. You are in the kingdom of God. But the world, those who are outside of the elect, are not in the kingdom of God. And therefore, here are the three reasons why Christians are hated. First, the believer loves the word. Jesus says, I've given them your word. We love the word of the Lord. Secondly, believers are not of this world. They're not. We are of another world. We belong to the heavenly kingdom. And three, the devil is behind the hatred leveled against the church. So we are not to hate those around us, even though they mistreat us. It is they're not, they're dead in their sins, right? So they may mistreat us, they may mock us for our faith. Now, if they're mocking us because we're doing things that are wrong, that are sinful, or we're being hypocritical, they have every reason to mock us. But if they mock us for our faith, they mock us because we love the Lord, they mock us because we're Christians, they ridicule us because we believe in the scriptures, right? That's fine. We are still to respect them and treat them kindly. For these reasons, the early Christians were suffering and being persecuted. And as I said, we're not talking about, therefore, a common suffering, because everyone in the world suffers in some degree. We, people that get cancer, Christians get cancers, non-Christians get cancers. So, like, Non-Christians lose jobs, we lose jobs. Everyone is dealing with COVID-19, whether they be Christians or not. So this is common suffering. We're not dealing with common suffering. Once you belong to Christ, there will be persecution, there will be hardship. And so I've seen Christians that say, since I became a believer, I've lost my job. But that is not, that is not because of your faith. That's common suffering. Uh, things don't go well, I don't understand. That is not because of your faith. That, that, that is, has nothing to do with picking up your cross and following. Picking up your cross means you are going to be hated. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be ridiculed because of your faith in me. Pick up your cross. Follow me, Jesus is saying. If you keep your faith a private thing, as the world around us wants us to, uh, you will have no problems. But if you live your faith openly and shamelessly, and you share the gospel with those around you, you will be hated. You will be persecuted. And it was for this reason that the Christians of Asia Minor, to whom this letter was addressed, were persecuted. And Paul, Peter is encouraging them. Now, what is a natural reaction once we suffer? All right. Once we suffer, anyone who suffers, what is the natural reaction? You know, you don't go out there and put yourself out. I know people, for example, that are on Facebook, but as soon as they are suffering, they pull back. Right? There's less exposure. That's a normal thing. So these Christians were suffering harshly. They were mistreated for their faith. So what does Peter say? Don't retreat. Don't pull away from each other. Rather, Love each other fervently. 
That's the opposite, right? If I'm suffering, what do I do? I pull away. Many Christians I've known that because they're going through hardships, they just pull away from uh, the, the faith, the fellowship, because they just don't want to be seen that they're suffering or they don't want to be seen. Paul Peter says, no, no. When you suffer, and you will suffer, draw closer in. Take care of each other. Go out of your way. Don't lick your wounds. Love each other. Notice 1 Peter 1.22, because he's already said this in the first chapter. Same thing, same concept. Since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brothers and sisters, right? We can't love unless we're born again, unless we've been, we are obeying Christ. There is no love for the brethren, right? We've purified our souls in obedience to the truth. Now he says, fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently. So Peter's using the same adjective, fervently, which means intense, constant, strenuous. There is a there's an intentionality about this. Paul, Peter's saying, grow in your love for each other. He's talking about red hot love. So while you're being mistreated, saints, while you're going through your hardships, while there are trials in your life, while there are difficulties abounding in you, love each other. So who are we to love fervently? Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So who are the one another Peter is referring to? It's obvious. It's believers. The church members with all their quirks and all their flaws and those that get under your skin. Uh, those who um, those who perhaps don't think like you and have a different way of seeing things. You are to love them fervently. It's, I'm sure the words of Jesus must have come to Peter's mind as he was writing this. We all remember what happened when Peter denied Jesus three times. And then after his resurrection, Jesus met up with Peter and the disciples, and he singles out Peter in a single special way. And this, they were having breakfast. And during breakfast, that's a great time to talk, right? During breakfast, Jesus uh, calls out Peter. And uh, you'll find the story in John 21 from verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Another version says Barjona, same thing, son of John. Do you love me more than these? Who's the these? Well, the rest of the disciples. Some people say it's more than fish. It's not, it's absurd. Asking Peter if he loved Jesus more than fishing. Please. Do you love me more than the rest? Because that's what Peter's boast, right? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But notice he didn't say, I love you more than these. Right? Peter answered, I love you. He, and then Jesus replies, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John. Do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time. Can you imagine being asked the same question? Jesus never did this with anyone. Never. 
This is the first time he's ever done this. Some say it's because Jesus denied him. Uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. Could be. He asks him three times because he wants to drive the point home. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. Why? Because Peter loved Jesus. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Interesting. Jesus makes the correlation between the flock, God's people, and love for him. There's a lot that can be said in this passage. I'm not going to break it up or delve into it. But the one thing that is undeniable is that you cannot love the Lord and stay disconnected, be separate from the church. I've met many Christians who feel that they can love the Lord and not love the church. That's impossible. It's impossible. They're, that's the deception of the enemy. You cannot love the Lord and stay away from God's people. And especially in a time like this with COVID-19, that becomes a challenge. But we're called to love each other. The greater our love for the Lord and the greater our love for an engagement with believers. When we pull away from the church, it's because our love is diminishing for the Lord. Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, Jesus said to the church, you have left your first love. Who was Who's the church's first love? It's Christ. So instead of delighting in him, and yet they were a doctrinal church, they were able to distinguish who were the false prophets, the false teachings, but they didn't delight in Jesus as they did in the beginning. And Jesus tells them to repent. So it could happen that we uh, lose that love for our Lord, and we see it in the way we love the church. Do we criticize? Do we gossip? Do we stay away from people? Do we feel that we're better than others? That's a diminishing love for the church. See, Peter had boasted to Jesus that he was never going to abandon him. These other ones, they will maybe, but I will never abandon you. Because he actually did love the Lord and he meant it. He put his sword in his sheath. He goes, I don't care if I'm going to be the last one to stick with you. And he tried his best. He did. But we know what happened. In the courtyard, he denied Jesus three times while Jesus was being tried. Three times. He said, I don't know him. I, I don't know him. And Peter had every intention of loving the Lord, but he had put himself on a pedestal compared to others. He did not heed the warning of the Lord. The flesh is very real. And when we think we can handle Christianity on our own, we sink fast. It's what happened to Peter. He was walking on water and then he sank. It happens to all of us. So when we love the brethren, it's not because of us. It's because the Lord enables us. And when we don't, when we pull away, when we criticize, when we are harsh with each other, when we don't have that kind of love um, that the Lord wants us to have for each other, we sink. We sink into our fleshly behavior. And we hurt each other, but that's okay. The Lord pulls us back up and he says, resume. Walk by faith. Walk in the spirit. Walk in love. True love for Christ translates itself in red hot love for believers. A Christian who is aloof and distant, a Christian who criticizes, and a Christian who sees others as hypocrites, 
And Christian says, I can do this on my own. I have my Bible. I have my daily bread. And it's just me and Jesus is not obeying the Lord. A genuine love for Christ translates into love for the brethren. That's why Jesus said these words in John chapter 13. I am giving you a new commandment. Notice this is a new commandment. This never existed in the Old Testament. Moses never said these words. None of the prophets ever said these words. Never, none of them. Because the law cannot generate this kind of love in our hearts. A new commandment I'm giving you. Notice that you love one another. This is why it's different. Just as I have loved you. See, Moses could not, couldn't have said that. No one could have said these words. Just as I have loved you. That's the way we need to love each other. Wow. That you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are called to love each other because this is proof that we are his. Even while the culture is mistreating us, even while we're going through hardships and difficulties of life. It's in this manner that the world knows that we belong to him. That's the distinguishing mark of the church. So what does fervent love look like? It says, above all, keep fervent in love for one another. Well, Peter says, because this is the distinguishing mark, we need to know how it looks like. Of course, we can look at Jesus, how he laid down his life for the apostles. But Paul also gives us a very good definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 4 to 7. We know this passage. It's a passage that couples who are about to get married usually request to be read at their wedding ceremony. It's interesting. Very few. I think I don't, I'm not even sure if any have ever asked. I've ever asked that Ephesians five be read, but everyone asks for First Corinthians thirteen and four to seven. So here's the definition that, or the description better, that Paul gives: Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not keep an account of wrongs suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. I've seen people say, yep, yeah, I'm going to love my wife like this. I'm going to love my husband like this. This is the kind of love we're going to have in our home. <laughs> and I say, really? This is, just, this is the description of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. That's his life. We can't love like this. <laughs> That's the first thing we have to realize when we read this. Peter, Paul was able to, able to describe it, <laughs> but Paul did not live like this fully. Only by grace can we live like this. Otherwise, there's just no way. As we abide in him, Jesus says, in John 15, we will bring forth fruit and the fruit of love will be there. But if we don't abide in Christ, we're, we can try and try. We're just going to fail miserably. We cannot turn love into an emotional, superficial, and corny experience. You know, people say, oh, I love you, and they hug I love you, man. You're my bro. And we're just in salt. Jesus never hugged anybody. Think about it. I think maybe the babies, the babies when they brought them, he never hugged anybody. You ever notice that? There was no COVID-19 in those days. 
I know I've seen pictures of Jesus hugging people, little people, oh, look how he loves us. And you know, everybody sees, shows Jesus hugging people. Jesus never ever hugged anyone. Ever. I think it was Mary at the resurrection. When she saw him, she held on to his feet. She did something that no woman could ever do. She held on to him at his feet. She says, please don't go. That's it. Jesus never hugged anyone. But he loved like no one ever loved. He's our example. He is our role model. He's the one who shows us what love looks like. And only by his grace can we grow in this kind of love more and more for each other. Love must not be superficial between the church. Because if it is, we're not bringing glory to him and the world doesn't know. Because we're just like everyone else. Because you can go to any club and everybody say, hey, bro, hey, bro. And they're hugging each other. and kissing. That's not the love that we want or that Christ commands us to have between each other. Now, before I deal with the second part of this verse, I'm going to deal with an issue that I feel is very important. Why is there such confusion amongst believers when it comes to love. There's such confusion. Um, many Christians see Jesus as a role model, as I just described him, as Peter, reading the, the verses in 1 Corinthians 13, he's a role model of love. And they see Jesus as very inclusive. They see him, for example, standing up against the religious establishment of his day, but uh, welcoming everyone else and demanding nothing of them, right? Um, he lets the rest be themselves. But he's very hard with the Pharisees and the scribes, the, very, the elite of society. And this portrayal of Jesus allows many Christians today uh, who don't want to be seen as narrow Christians to be as much as possible in jive with the culture around them. Uh, they identify themselves as Christians. And, uh, but in a rather loose way, they will say things like Jesus is love. And so we need to love each other and accept and not judge anyone, no matter how they live, just like Jesus did. That's their claim. This is the Christian left. Very strong about this. This is entered into every church, by the way, every church. Uh, they'll continue saying, if we love as Jesus loved, we will accept one another regardless of whether they are gay, transgender, pansexual, pro-choice, living together. We don't have to look at what they're doing. We don't have to be concerned. We just have to love each other. We can't judge them on the basis of their lifestyle. There's no judgment. We must not alienate the seeker because we're called to love each other. Because if we love each other, we cover a multitude of sins. That's, what they, that's how they see this verse. So they'll cover, say, we don't have to, just cover. Just love each other and just let's accept each other. Not loving them, they say, or not accepting them as they are, reveals that we are pharisaical, that we are judgmental, self-righteous, and hypocritical. How can we say that we are living out 1 Corinthians 13 if we are judging someone for his lifestyle? Because he's a gay, because he's living together with someone else, because they're pro-choice or whatever other lifestyle they've chosen. How can we say that we love like Jesus? 
How can we say that we are covering a multitude of sins? If we keep exposing this, we're going to alienate people. We're going to, we're already a few as Christians. We shouldn't be doing that. And then there are others who want to honor God's word because they read scriptures and they see that in scripture, sin is called sin. They see it in themselves because they see that as Christians, we realize we're totally depraved. We're wretched sinners. Like Paul would say, oh, wretch that I am. And we don't want to take sin lightly. But they don't want to become harsh. They want to deny all ungodliness as scripture commands us to. But at the same time, they're afraid of being portrayed as judgmental, as bigots, if they condemn sinful lifestyles. And so the result is that we have a church, evangelical church in the West, that is pro-gay, some of them quietly, some of them overtly. Pro-choice. Many Christians right now feel there's nothing wrong with abortion. Don't even touch it. They'll say, many Christians... They have no scriptural backing for it. They just say, well, the word of God, yes, says it, but it doesn't mean that. It's, it means something else. They're pro-transgender. Many Christians are embracing this position of a very weak love, if you want to call it that. That's probably the best way. Because they don't want to alienate seekers. And they, they don't define it, define it as weak love. They, find it, they define it as, this is love, the way Jesus loved. They want the seeker to feel welcome and accepted and not offended. After all, are we not called to love them? I remember seeing this big billboard when I was driving in the U.S., right next to a church, and it, says, it said these words, that love thy neighbor thing I meant it and was signed God. And then when I looked into the church, I saw that it was a church that was very accepting of no matter what kind of lifestyle, no matter what your positions, we love everybody, we're inclusive, we accept diversity. And, and they were seen that way as a loving church because they believed that this is the best way to cover a multitude of sins. So, is that what Peter meant? Let's read the verse again. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. What did Peter mean by this? Does it mean that we are to be accepting of people who call themselves Christians? I'm talking about Christians now. But live contrary to God's word. If this was Peter's position, there would have been no need for him to write this letter. Nearly Christians would never, ever have been persecuted. They were persecuted for their righteous lifestyle because they did not join, as we read in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and 3. They didn't join the others as they engaged in all kinds of immoral activity, in all kinds of debauchery. Uh, they would have not been persecuted had they lived like everyone else. The idea of the church not offending sinners is not a new one. If we don't want to offend Christians who live 
sinful lifestyle. Not talking about outside of the church. There are a whole bunch of people that go on Facebook and they bash the gay community and they go outside and they're with with their uh, placards and, and speak against homosexuality and they're they're bashing people who don't know the Lord. That's wrong. First Corinthians chapter five it says very clearly that anyone who is a brother who calls himself a brother and engages in sinful activity, those are the ones we're going to be dealing with. So it's within the church. The idea of church not offending these who are, call themselves Christians and are within the church is ludicrous. And sadly, many pastors, many pastors, they are at the forefront. Many pastors are doing exactly this, and they do it by distorting the gospel. Now, to see what Peter meant, we need to read another book where these, this expression is repeated in James chapter 5, verse 20. Let's turn to that, James 5, 20, where it says, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, oh, that's a different perspective. Now we understand it, don't we? Scriptures interpret scriptures. That's how we read scripture. So the person who sees his brother, someone who calls himself a brother, and he's pulling away from the, from the flock, pulling away from Christ, living a sinful lifestyle, we just don't let him go. Or a person that stays within the church, like in 1 Corinthians 5, the person was openly practicing uh, a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Right? Paul deals with the church because this person must have been a very powerful individual. Why would they have left him uh, untouched and unattended? And just let him, do it. let him be. It's between him and God. And Paul calls out their arrogance, calls out their unwillingness to obey the Lord, to love as Christ loved the church. You see, look at that verse, uh, that uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 13 again. It says, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So if I take someone who's living in sin and I rejoice over that, well, that's not love. <laughs> that's not love at all. It rejoices with the truth. So where's truth? Well, the truth is in God's word. So imagine I'm, I'm arrogant and you rejoice with me over my arrogance. Well, that's, there's, a, there's a problem there. And Christians can be arrogant, so we need to address it when, when it's there. Or if I'm hypocritical, like Peter was. Remember when Peter, when he saw the Christians, uh, the, the Christian Jews come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and for a, a while they were not with him, he was there eating with the Gentile Christians. And then when they come around, Peter pulls back. And what does Paul do? He rebukes him openly. You see, we need to deal with sin in the church because in doing so we cover a multitude of sin because otherwise sin is like leaven it just grows and grows and grows and it just multiplies quickly it's like a weed i've often spoken about weeds it, weeds grow fast grass takes a lot of care and attention but weeds in the lawn just multiply without you doing a thing that's what happens when sin is left unattended if I genuinely love my brother, 
I will not hesitate to confront him when I see sin in his life. Not that I go and speak to someone else about it. Not that I gossip about it. Absolutely not. Never gossip about someone who is falling into sin. If something has come to your attention, you don't run to the leaders. Oh, brother, by the way, this, I saw this. I saw this. You take care of it. That's not what the scripture says. There is a time when leadership has to kick in. But it says, basically, that we are to love each other fervently enough that I will speak to my brother, I will speak to my sister when I see that there is sinful behavior. I don't mean weaknesses. I don't mean quirks. I don't mean that. You know, your husband, you husbands know the quirks of your wife, and you wives know the quirk of your husbands. You know, we all have quirks. We all have things that, you know, that we do a certain way. Right? I have certain quirks. We don't mean that. We're talking about sin. When there's sin that could spread rapidly in the church, we need to address that. We lay down our lives for our brother, for our sister. Our love must be red hot. I'm going to bring you two examples. One of weak love and one of strong love. Love, one that prevented a multitude of sins and the other one instead where sin just abounded. Two examples from Scripture. First is found in um, 1 Samuel, chapter 2. Here we read the story of a high priest called Eli, and he had two sons by the name of Hophni and Phinehas. It says in 1 Samuel, chapter 2, from verse 22 to 24, and then we'll skip to verse 27 to 29 for lack of time, we'll do this. Says in verse 22, now Eli was very old. He's a high priest for Israel, okay? And he heard about everything that his sons were doing to all Israel. Now, notice what they were doing at the house of God that they slept with the woman. So there were women who were serving at the temple, at the house of God. Sorry, it wasn't a temple at that time, at the house of God in Shiloh. That's where it was. They were serving at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they were the ones ministering, helping the priests to carry out their duties. And these men who were priests were sleeping with the woman. Most, most of them, in fact, all of them, because unmarried women were not allowed to do this. And so he said to them, why such things? This is Eli speaking to his sons. The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons. For the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one person sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? In other words, you're priests and you represent the Lord. And you're telling the people that this is acceptable in God's sight. And then a man of God came to Eli, the high priest, and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests? So he's reminding them that they, from all the tribes of Israel, they, the Levites were chosen and they, especially the sons of Aaron, were chosen to be priests. To go up to my altar, to burn incense and to carry an ephod before me. Did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? In other words, <clears throat> I made sure that you were well taken care of. Why are you showing contempt 
for my sacrifice, in other words, for this role as a, of a priest, my offerings, which I've commanded for my dwelling, why are you honoring your sons above me? Now, did Eli love God? Yes, he did. But he loved his sons a little more. What we have here is weak love on display, and that's what's present in the church. People say, I love you. We sing songs about God. I love you. And, and we sing about this love, and many times it's a confusing kind of love. It's a sentimental kind of love. And while we're doing that, we could be tolerating sin, just like Eli was doing that with his sons. Eli was, give, uh, was supposed to rebuke them and remove them from the priesthood, but he doesn't do that. He gives them a mild rebuke, says, don't do it, please don't do it. And they keep doing it, of course, they've been doing it for a long time. And God gave them a chance to repent and they never repented. Eli chose not to offend his children, but in so doing, he offended God. That's what weak love does. When we love each other weakly, right? And we accept each other and just allow everything to happen and it's okay. We don't offend each other, but we end up offending God. And that is serious. Now let's look at an example of strong love. Strong love, we find that story is one that I think most of us know is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Here's a story of David. We all know this story, at least most of us do. <clears throat> David had his wives. He had kingdom. He was beloved. He had a name. He was a man after God's own heart. He, uh, he wrote psalms. This man was used of God in powerful ways. And what we see instead is that one day his flesh, his nature took over. He sees a woman bathing. He inquires about her. It's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. He, this guy, the husband was not even a Hebrew. He was a Hittite, but he was a loyal servant of the king. He had converted to the faith of God's people, the true faith. So he knows this. He's, I just want to speak to her. Could you call her? I just want to see her. But he couldn't help himself. He sees her and they make love. And then he sends her home and his conscience doesn't do anything about it. Then he she sends a message. I'm with child. He doesn't know what to do. He tries to cover up. He calls the husband from the ranks. He was out in, at war. Imagine David's calling for you, Uriah. He wants you to go back. Really? The king wants me? And he's trying to make Uriah go back to his wife and sleep with his wife. But Uriah refuses. Because no, my men are out in the field. I'm not going to do that. He tries to get him drunk. And he still doesn't do it. He doesn't stop. And then finally he writes something. He gives it to Uriah. And it was his death sentence. He doesn't know. It's sealed with the king's seal. He doesn't know it's inside. One thing it says, when you're out of battle and with Uriah, you have the men pull back. Leave Uriah alone. See, how wicked. The man after God's own heart. And that's what happens. Joab says, wow, what is going on? They don't understand. So the men, tells the men, when you're with Uriah, you pull back. I said, Uriah, the one who's a servant, the one who's a soldier, the one who fights, he was one of the men 
who was the best fighters in another chapter speaks about Uriah. He was the most loyal servant of all of King of David, King David's servant. He didn't understand it. They looked at each other. Who wants this? Just do it. Joab says, follow my orders. And that's what happens. They're out in battle. They all pull back and Uriah is killed in battle. And Uriah looks around and goes, what's going on? He's left alone and he's murdered. Now the men start talking to each other and finally discover that David has a new wife. Her name, Bathsheba. They put one and one together and it just spreads like wildfire. Everybody's talking about this. See what David did? You know, oh, he's king, what can you do? And if it was me, we would have to be stoned. Not him, he's king. He's privileged. He's the one who slew King, uh, the, the, the great giant Goliath. And on and on went for a whole year like this. God's name was being blasphemed because then it spread throughout the kingdom and then it spread into other areas. That's what happens when sin is not dealt with. Finally, Nathan, he, um, he's had enough. He goes, I'm going to approach the king, even if it means my head. Now, this is the king. Nathan is just a, he's a friend. He's a prophet. But he's not his peer. This is not another king <coughs> approaching King David. In those days, kings what they did what they wanted to do. If they want to take women, they'll take one. They want your land, they take your land. They want your horse, they take your horse. They, they want your crops, they take your crops. No one said anything. You can't. He's the king. Nathan approaches him and tells him a story. And after telling him a story, David is infuriated. He knows the story. The story is there's one man, he had one little lamb, and there's a, he had a neighbor who had a great flock of sheep, great flock, thousands upon thousands of sheep. He was a wealthy man, and this wealthy man received a visit, and uh, he didn't know what to do because I have to feed him something. I know what. I'll take the lamb that belongs to my neighbor. It doesn't matter. Who cares? He's a small guy. It's not going to bother him. Takes lamb, steals it, slaughters it, and feeds his friend. When David hears his story, he is infuriated because he used to be a shepherd. Nathan used a very unique tactic to confront the sin of this powerful king. He's infuriated. He gets up from his throne. Who is this man? He deserves to die. And this is what Nathan says. Chapter 12, 2 Samuel, verse 7. You, yourself, are the man. Can you imagine when David heard that? <laughs> the king. This is in his court. A whole bunch of people are there. Powerful individuals. They had their hands on the sword. They were ready to kill Nathan. Knock him down. You don't speak like this to the king. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. It is I who anointed you as king over Israel. It is I who rescued you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and put your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised my 
uh, the word of the Lord. By doing evil in his sight. You have struck and killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife as your wife. You have slaughtered him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now then, the sword shall never leave your house. Now it begins the, the punishment. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is what the Lord says. Behold, I'm going to raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes. Give them to your companion. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel in open daylight. Then David said to Nathan, you're going to die. No, he didn't. I have sinned against the Lord. And this is unusual. No king would have done this. God gave him the grace to repent. What a story. But he could only have repented because someone confronted him. Not everyone repents. I've confronted individuals that have not repented. And they were not powerful individuals. Only one was quite powerful. And he turned against me for a while. And then afterwards, he, uh, he called me after a few years. But generally, when people are confronted, they walk away. They say no. That's what happens when we confront people who are Christians and openly walk in sin. But there are exceptions to that. There are people who like David. Now David, that he was so powerful and so beloved, humbled himself like this is really God's grace. And we need to ask God for grace. One, to confront individuals, as it says in Galatians 6, chapter 1, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, if you behold your brother who is in sin, you who are spiritual. So you need you need right spirit. You need grace to confront, but we don't let sin go unattended. And it means that if anyone sees sin in me, he must confront me as well. And if we do that with each other, this is how we fervently love one another. So not only are we to take care of each other and just encourage one another and be there for one another, but then when there's sin in a believer, and I know that about that sin, I'm called to confront them. And if I don't have the right heart, then I should pray and pray until I'm ready. And then I'll confront him because I love that brother. And I don't want sin to continue. You see, by Nathan doing this, he stopped sin dead in, the, in its tracks in David's life. Otherwise, it would have continued to spread and would have wreaked such havoc in the kingdom. Now the kingdom knew that God's judgment was on the king, that God did not treat David any differently. In fact, the severity of the treatment was such that people of God feared. They knew that if God did this to his beloved servant David, he will do the same to me. And this is what we need to do with each other. We need to confront sin when there's sin. So we need to love each other fervently. And above all else, not be afraid to confront when there is sin. We don't rejoice in unrighteousness. That's not love. We rejoice with truth. So what we need today in a culture where there's a lot of 
weak love, I'm talking about in the church, we need manifestation of true love, strong love, the love that pleases God, the love that Christ has for his church. He was willing to die for our sins. We cannot excuse sin. We can't. By doing that, we are undermining the sacrifice of Christ. But neither do, must we be um, arrogant when confronting sin. There are Christians that are so concerned about confronting sin, they become just arrogant. That's, we remember, we are wretched sinners. We need to always keep in front of us the doctrine of total depravity. So when we confront our brother, we confront not because we're better. We can't be like Peter who says, everyone will leave you. Everyone is going to do this. And every, but not me. I'm not going to do it. Because then the Lord will show us that we're just like everyone else. When we boast and we put ourselves on a pedestal, we must deliver ourselves from that kind of attitude. The church that embraces weak love will appear to be inclusive and following the path of of Christ, but in actuality, it's the path of self. The church that embraces strong love, while guarding its heart against all arrogance, all boasting, walking humbly before God, will please the Lord, and it will keep the church in purity. May God grant that we be that kind of a church. Let us pray. Father, there are some who are hearing and listening to this message that are in darkness. They're living lives of disobedience. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. We pray that anyone who is defiant against your word and once knew you and loved you, you called him out of darkness and he became yours, but now he has forgotten the cleansing of his sins. And he, like David, has fallen into disobedience and, and he's telling everyone around him, I do what I want to do. Lord, help him to realize that if he doesn't humble himself, if he doesn't repent, there will be a harsh judgment against him. I pray that you would equip the church to love fervently, that there would be a strong love in our midst, that we would care for each other, not forget each other, we cannot do this on our own. We realize this is a tall order. How can we love this way? Delivers from superficial, childish-like love. Where we just say, hey, bro, how are you? Hey, really good. Good to see you. Help us to see what kind of love Jesus had for his disciples. And then to go out and love each other this way. Grant us the grace. Thank you for the word that we've read. Thank you for how you chisel it in the hearts of your children. And we live, O oh Lord, to honor your name. Be glorified in the church. Be glorified in everyone who's present here. Be glorified in the lives of the people of God for your name's sake. Because these are difficult times in which we live and we need your grace. To live joyfully for you. And to live holy lives that please you. And this we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Oh,